So uh, we've got a couple of written questions here, and uh, I'll res respond as best I can. And uh, if, you, if anything else comes out of those two questions that seem, you know, that, that, you know, that you have other questions that arise out of those particular questions, please take the opportunity to ask. Sometimes uh, hear a question, it triggers off uh, another thought in your mind. So it'd be uh, while we have this time together to inquire. It's also nice to hear your voices. <laughs> so sometimes writing it down helps you get it clearer. You know, you think it through. But also when it comes out of your voice, there's a certain uh, you get the, the the feeling behind it. Anyway, this one's a pretty you know uh, common issue, common question. Yeah, common and yet uh, yeah, understandably difficult to work with. How do you deal with recurring thoughts that seem to grow out of all proportion? It's so easy to be dragged along by them and they cause so much stress. Well, who didn't ask that question? <laughs> yeah. I don't know what she's talking about. <laughs> yeah, so um, how do you deal with recurring thoughts that seem to grow out of all proportion? Mm. It's so easy to be dragged along by them and they cause so much stress. Mm. Stress, being dragged along, sense of being overwhelmed, you know, thrown around by this stuff that seems to be happening out of one's control, growing out of all proportion. The uh, sorcerer's apprentice, you know, start to think a thought, it starts to grow and grow and grow, and you don't know the spell to stop it. <laughs> uh, well, there's a few things there, aren't there? You know, first of all, you say there's, there's a sense in which we are very much leaning towards thoughts uh, a lot of the time in our lives to lead us. So there's a natural kind of almost, I would say, an imbalance to, to the thinking apparatus. Yeah. You know, we, we value philosophy and maths and physics and great ideas. So we have this bias towards the thinking mind. We put a lot of energy into it. We value it. We praise it. And then we can't switch it off because there's that net, you know, because we've actually given it too much say over our lives. Yeah. And then we try to think of an answer to it. Of course, that's putting more into it, isn't it? Yeah. So we keep putting more energy into the thinking apparatus, the thinking energy. And, we, and um, it has a great hold over us. So, as a general thing, you know, as a slow but general, general thing that takes years actually, is that sense of lessening the emphasis in our lives around what we th around the uh, thinking. Hmm? So, certainly, spending time in silence, and also directing your thinking not towards 
what you should, what the future, past, remembering, adding things up, musing, fancying, but just using thinking to say what's actually happening in your heart right now, what's happening in your body right now, how does it feel to you? So getting your thinking to, to listen, using it as something that points somewhere and then listens, rather than just keep nattering on all the time. How is that? How is that? Using it like that. So using thinking as a kind of an aspect of a dialogue rather than an ongoing monologue. And the other aspect of the dialogue is the silence. So then the thinking and the silence work together. It's not just thinking, 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 but thinking and the silence that in which you hear, you receive, you sense, you feel. Is that right? Think again, look at it again. How was it? You got it? Yeah. Because um, <clears throat> reality is not a thought. Actuality is not a thought. You know, we tend to almost assume that our, our staggering capacity to conceive and construct amazing realms of thought you start to believe that the thought thing is the real thing. But it isn't, is it? What's a thought of a jam sandwich compared with eating it? What's a thought of a person compared with living with them? What's a thought of anything compared with the, the feel the emotional responses which are changing, flexible, sensitive. Mm. So one thing we have to do is to, to learn to, that we have other, op- op- as a long-term thing, we have other ways of intelligence. Not that thinking's useless, but it is one form of intelligence that has certain tremendous power to it. We can produce this artificial realm and we can send it to somebody else through our thoughts and words through our emails and telephone calls amazing you can wrap the world up in a thought and present it to somebody else you can wrap up the future, the past your life in some thoughts and and they get it, they get a good bit of it that's amazing but isn't the real thing So there's also the amazing intelligence that comes from listening. Listening through the heart, how it feels to you, what it feels true, real, bright, alive. It feels fake, weird, uncertain, unsteady, painful, pleasant. The perceptual feeling level experience is also very, is a form of intelligence. And that form of intelligence generally asks us to to stay in relationship with something and really sense it out. It involves us. Thinking abstracts us, takes us out of the real thing, out of the relationship, out of the connection with things, into where we can stand back. That's what's so attractive about it. You know, we can think about the world blowing up 
or, you know, riots and disasters and plagues and just completely cool. You're not in it, you can abstract with it. When you get into the real the feeling the thing, you're, you're part of it. And this is why thinking is dangerous. Yeah. Because, you know, this is how come brilliant scientists can do, or, you know, concoct horrible things. And uh, great statesmen and politicians can do horrible things. And religious fanatics can do horrible things. You know, concepts, throw some ideas around. So it was the feeling of the thing. So we tried to learn how to awaken these other forms of intelligence, the heart sense, and even the body sense. What does your body say about being in this space? You feel quite right. How are you? How does your body feel about being with this other person? Just to need a bit more space, you know. Or feel warm, feel comfortable. So as you, you develop those, then you, you, th- you have less leaning on the thought faculty. And that's a long-term thing. Uh, and it means being able to be a little less clear. Because thinking <coughs> is amazingly clear. The felt thing is not so clear. It's kind of fuzzy and shifting and intuitive. But uh, particularly when you come around to living with your own mind, yourself, with other people you care for, you don't want to, you don't want to experience that through thought. Yeah. It's too precious. Yeah. Yeah. So this is a kind of long-term thing, why we meditate. Sort of short-term, you know, immediate, you might say, techniques. You have to be careful with the word like dealing with because uh, dealing with can be uh, a polite way of (laughs) shut it up, throttle it. But how do we relate to recurring thoughts? Hmm. Yeah. Sorry? If you have almost no thoughts in meditation, it's a mistake too. Well, it depends. It depends if your, your intelligence can be there without thought. Yeah. But also, you can have no intelligence and no thought. <laughs> so the idea in general in meditation is to start to refine the thinking process to just that which is noting. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Got it? Yeah, pointing. And then gradually that becomes redundant as your intelligence picks up and you don't, don't need the thought. But you can also n- numb out, which is, uh, and you get what's called stump samadhi, which is stupid, stupid samadhi. So you don't want to, you know, so sometimes thought ceases, but there is intelligence. In other words, there's sensitivity, there's brightness, there's awareness. Yeah. That's, that's, that's valuable. When you get these recurring trains of thought, then um, you have to start to you know, look at the topic and uh, the thought, why it recurs. 
because uh, there's an under, there's an emotional um, element there that is not being heard. So we look at what is the emotional quality of that thought? Is it worry? Is it uh, greed? Is it lust? Is it aversion? What's nagging away? Yeah. What's the emotion? What's the heart feeling behind it? So you look behind your thought at the, you know, you get all kinds of just static crackling through. You get particular ones that have got some charge in them. And then, what's that about? And then you, then you try to feel the emotional quality behind the thought and then try to feel it in your body. So you translate the thought into the emotion, the emotion into a, like a, an energy in your body with you feeling pressurized and uh, breathing through it. So essentially, you, know, you might say you, you go to the energy of the thought and uh, acknowledge that. There's an emotional content. It might need to be addressed with things like wise reflection. You've got an obsessive uh, addiction of some kind or another. And wise reflecting, hey, this isn't doing me any good. You know, what's this about? Um, or we contemplate the kind of needle stuck in the groove feeling of a thought and go to the, the energy of that and start to slow it down. Which means perhaps even thinking the thought slowly, slowly, slower, slower, until what occurs is the, the energy of the thought no longer is in that same groove. Your energy, the energy behind the thought is slowing down. So you can't be angry in a slow, reflective way. You can't think, I would like to wring his neck. <laughs> you know? So, <laughs> you know, it's going to be, oh, I'd like to wring his neck. <laughs> so if you slow it right down, you think, wow. It sort of it starts to deconstruct. So, you know, changing the energy behind the thought is skillful as well. There's no point in just kind of getting averse to it. But we start to kind of hold the thought, catch it, contemplate what's this about, what's the real meaning of this for me? Frustration or worry or need. And then we might address the emotional quality of that kindness, compassion, wise reflection, relinquishment. Or we might, in fact, start to go to, it's just some kind of niddering thing that just keeps rattling away. The repetitive quality of it, slow the energy down. And that means it starts to kind of slip out of the groove, slip out of the, of the treadmill of it. Sometimes thoughts are just almost consequences of too much energy, or energy just too buzzing up in your head. Slow it down, bring it down into your body. It will tend to, to calm and cool it. Mm-hmm. Then you, you know, then thinking is something that you can experience rather like any other phenomenon. You know, it doesn't have the same personal stamp to it. It's just, you know, 
nothing, no, no big thing really, one way or another. Anything more about thought, thinking? So we consider the energy of that. It's kind of loose energy. It's running up into our Mm. rational circuits. This is why, in a way, one of the one of the, the strategies of meditation is just to occupy the mind with uh, scrutiny of breathing, of bodily sensations. It doesn't have the room to think. <laughs> you're, kind of, you're pegging it down, saying, you know, tell me all you can find out about an in-breath. And it's so occupied with that that it can't go, you know, nattering on about other things. Hmm? I'm... You know, the Buddha said that mindfulness of breathing is there, is a is a, a, a skillful means of dealing with discursive thought. For most people, it's the other way around, really. Discursive thought is a means of, of getting rid of mindfulness of breathing. <laughs> but it can be that if you really, you know, get your mind to report moment at a time, you know, like, is it soft? Is it sharp? Is it bright? Is it clear? Is it, is it in your chest? How is it, how is it right now? So it's really studying that. And it gets so engrossed in that that it doesn't think about other things. Just as when you're watching the, you know, engrossing television program, you don't think about, you know, the neighbors or this, that, and the other because you're so involved in that. So that's a... Another strategy. Yeah. Yeah, you talked about five particular strategies. One is to reverse. So if you're thinking a thought of ill will, then the person you have ill will for, you start to consider, well, maybe I should be more compassionate. So you reverse the topic. One is uh, to um, consider the thought you're thinking as, this is unworthy of me, you know, just put it aside, you know. Another one is just to to um, not pay attention to that particular topic. Another one is to um, slow it down, as I've been saying. Another one is just to, if you get really, you know, obsessive thought, and just to kind of basically repress it. But that's a last-ditch strategy, probably not for meditation, but more for, you know, in your daily life, you're just about to slug somebody because you've got a powerful thought in your mind, you think, just, just hold it. <laughs> you know, count to ten, as it were, before you 
blab it out through your mouth. Which one? Well, those those five, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. those five. Yeah. I do find that they help. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I get I, I get quite fascinated by thoughts, so that's a, that's a be a problem. We fall in love with them. Such pretty little things. these nice ideas nobody bothers you and these little castles in the air you know rather than dealing with life which is all sort of complex and you know you've got carte blanche to create what you like so it's a thinker's paradise you know so I had to actually look at the the slightly giddy feeling that comes with it that I've been slightly drunk and uh, just recognizing I spent 45 minutes concocting a fantasy did it do me any good <laughs> so there's a lot learning thing you know getting obsessed with you know one time in retreat to remember the names of the, all the names of the sons of Edward III for no particular reason it doesn't really matter you know, just just got to think this thought. And once I got it, once I got that name, I'll finish it. And just go through all that whole of my six years of study of history, trying to get through all the different names. And, you know, just stop that <laughs> obsession with knowledge. Yeah, it's balance, isn't it? It's balance. So, you know, that's true. We do live in this uh, world whereby, you know, you can estimate what the future possibly could be. And, uh, you know, you set down the causes and conditions for what could arise. It doesn't really happen exactly the way one plans it. But you can get something. Once you recognise that, then there's a, you know, you kind of have a rough idea. Problem is the the uh, when it becomes obsessive because there's a certain underlying compulsion behind it to get everything figured because we don't, you know, we don't we don't trust you know, that, you know, so we have to get it all figured out or particularly when you're rehashing the past tribunals and defences and 
who was right and who was wrong, what you should have done, and so on. Wow, that's going to be quite an industry too. <laughs> so after the time we're dealing with unresolved feelings, feelings of could have done better, oh dear, you know. And really, the, the you know, you look at the the feeling behind it. Then a lot of it is just a practice of kindness, compassion, forgiveness, and, and equanimity. You know, that deals with a lot of stuff actually. Somebody else has a question here or a a comment. I'm enjoying the process of spring cleaning my mind of its dusty cobwebs, habits and preconceived opinions, judgments, etc. I'd also like to think this would stand me in good stead for the next rebirth. Would a brain disease like Alzheimer's spoil this diligent work? Mm. Well, yes and no. I don't think it would it wouldn't rub out the the value of what has been done, but it would limit what you can do, what you can do further. But it is it is important to recognise that uh, you know what I'm saying. Mind is not uh, in the brain. I mean, brain is part of it. Um, even neurologically, you have. Um, different nerve centers so the mind is not really located in one spot the brain is certainly a a central clearing house and coordinator for a lot of neural signals but you have a huge amount of neural um, tissues around the heart for example is 60% uh, nerve tissue so the heart actually does is not just a poetic expression the heart does know things yeah. And also, there's some there's the, the in the in the in the gut. There's also an, uh, a lot of nervous energies, nervous tissues, that tell us about fear, for example. So these are these 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 areas are often the ones that, that coordinate with the autonomous nervous system. So you get something, you get a jump, you get reactions that occur before your brain can figure it. You know. And that's because the nerve end has gone straight to the motor nerves and, and acted. So don't send it up through the custard in your head. It's going to take too long to figure it out. You'll start thinking about it. If you haven't got time to do that, just go straight to the nerves and jump, you know. So you get a certain amount of, uh, of mind occurs as a 
form of intelligence that's, that's not brain-centered uh, or brain-dependent. Um, so Alzheimer's, not that I know that much about it, is, uh, it seems to be a degeneration of brain tissue, which would certainly make ordered thinking uh, increasingly impossible, memory loss and so forth. But what we're doing here is not purely um, a, a process of, of brain process, but also a process of, of clearing the heart of stress, disease, dis-ease, um, um, irritation, depression, sadness, anxiety. So these are not, these are not brain issues. These are consciousness issues. These are memory issues. These are karmic issues. So that, um, you know, you can have some considerable brain dysfunction and yet still experience the results of purity. I remember we had, had <coughs> several elderly people um, who were in close contact with Sangha and a couple of them I, I have uh, you know, known reasonably well. And uh, people who've been practicing meditation and practicing Dhamma for many years, and uh, over as they as they became more aged, then the brain functions getting less and less coherent, losing the ability to to speak or to form, um, uh, you know, uh, com- complete sentences. Mm-hmm. But the results of what they've been doing meant that even though they weren't that clear, they were kind of, there was a sense of joyfulness and happiness about them. They were not distressed by their loss of coherence. They also, they, were, they weren't, didn't have bitterness or resentment in their minds. You know? So the, the emotional uh, residues can be cleared. You know? That's what's the most important thing. You know, physical, the physiology of the brain is impermanent. What is important is that the, the emotional residues and the patterns in consciousness become cleared, which is not a, not a material thing. It's an immaterial thing. Mm-hmm. So, you, you know, you could actually be kind of have a brain melting down more or less and yet still experience a sense of... of um, you know, ease with that, relative ease with that. As Ajahn Chah, you know, he's had brain damage the latter decade of his life. <clears throat> some water on the brain or something, you know, something going wrong with the brain. So he became increasingly paralyzed. And, uh, but yet he still had that uh, awakeness and intelligence. And, uh, um, you know, uh, you, you know and people could... He couldn't speak, but he could certainly make his presence felt and and respond and be in touch with what was going on. Mm. So those things are not purely dependent upon the functioning, the functions of the brain, but um, certainly make you know while you've still got one, make use of it because <laughs> it can it's a handy handy piece of equipment. <coughs> Okay, let's just uh, stand up a little while.
So just to mention that uh, when we do have these these sittings, then uh, if you find yourself feeling really challenged by physical pain in your legs, please do feel free to stand up, flex your knees. There's no point in just uh, feeling overwhelmed and struggling with these uh, physical experiences. Um, then you can sit again. It helps to just, you know, feel you've got that that possibility, and then you can obviously you can work with the discomfort, or you can take a break from it, <clears throat> and you know sit down again. <clears throat> So as we were talking about uh, thought, the value of the usefulness and the uh, preponderance of it, there's a difference between concept and percept. Concept is the idea, abstract. You can use it to point towards an experience and say, hey, what is that? What does it really feel like? Direct experience is of sensation that is a sense of uh, pressure or heat or movement or space Mm -hmm. it's of uh, feeling pleasant, unpleasant Mm -hmm. it's of energy things tight, rushing slow, sluggish loose, bouncy Mm -hmm. That's the direct experience. So, you know, putting these words there. As you come into the experience of your body, what tells you you have a body directly? You know, you probably feel warmth, pressure, different kinds of movements, swellings, flushings. Let's try to feel the thing as it really is, rather than as we conceive it. And within that realm, you'll experience a, 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 a repeated process, steady repeating process, which is breathing in, breathing out. Now, you may not even feel the air, but you'll feel this kind of like a, like a tide in the whole realm of the body, tide of, of swelling, arising, and a tide of letting go. You feel that repeating itself time and time again in the realm of sensations, feelings, perceptions, and energies. That's what you listen to. Listen into that like you're tuning into a particular tidal flow in the bodily experience. 
monitor it, check it. Use your thinking mind to, to, how is it now? Check it out. How is it? Where is it? What's it doing? Hmm? Not that you really want answers, but you want to stay connected to that. This is what we use thinking for. called mindfulness bearing something in mind repeatedly referring to it and secondary questions we might ask is uh, you know how can the body present itself or sit itself so that this experience can receive maximum attention, maximum scope. Am I sitting in a way whereby that breath is com- breath energy is compressed or closed down? Can I, can I, is it possible to adjust the body so that the breath energy has the maximum amount of room to, to move? You sit in this bright, open way. So you maximize the, the, the channel for the breath energy to, to flow through. And then, so is there anything holding it back? When, you, when the, the out-breath, can it go all the way out? Is there anything, any resistance, any holding on that stops it from fully emptying? Can we lengthen it? Can we lengthen the pauses? So that when it comes in, it comes in clear and strong, flows fully. The body receives it, listens to it. And of course, is is um, vitalized and energized by that, and that's a happy feeling. Subtle pleasure of breathing in, breathing out.
So work, working with it. I might say when you try breathing out, letting the breath all go out, and then just stop. And uh, give it five seconds longer than you'd normally breathe in. This will certainly strengthen and energize your breathing. Breathing out, waiting, then as you're about to breathe in, just wait for another five seconds. Slow it down. It's like training it. It becomes sharp. It's not sluggish. When you feel you've brought the breathing to the fore, just step back a little. Soften your attitudes towards that. Try to pick up the quality of comfort of ease that goes along with that.
put some attention to keeping the feeling, the mental feeling of ease, if that occurs for you, connected to the more physical, energetic sensations that occur. Otherwise what will happen is your mind tends to drift off and go a little bit uh, loopy, dreamy. When it does so, as it probably will, the moment when you notice that's what's happening, it's the moment when you pause. Just ask the question, where is the breathing? Every time that you recognize and don't react, but just calmly ask the question, every time you do that, you build up. You build up a quality of equanimity and calm. It's very important to that point that we don't get flustered
So the moment of recognition, your train of thought started up. Ah, what's the energy in that? Is it sort of brisk, speedy? What's the emotion in it? Is it curious or whimsical or worried or what? Hmm. Just unpick it. And what's happening in your body right now? Can you breathe out? Can you let all that energy just be gently discharged? No aversion, no comment, just releasing the energy of the thought. It doesn't matter if you think it again, just learning to acknowledge that unpack it, release it. This is a really helpful thing to do. Learning about your thinking process and seeing through the topic into the emotion and the energy. Discharging that with a calm, gentle breathing.